Well, for Paul, coming to know Jesus Christ was the main event. It was the big event of his life. It turned him around. It rocked his world. Uh, Nothing was ever the same again. He had a new purpose, a new passion, a new mission, a new message. He, he had a new life. Uh, church historian Philip Schaff wrote a, wrote a book on church history, obviously. And he wrote this about Paul's conversion. I've loved this. The haughty, self-righteous, intolerant, raging Pharisee was changed into a humble, penitent, grateful, and loving servant of Jesus. He threw away self-righteousness, learning, influence, power, prospects, and cast in his lot with a small despised sect at the risk of his life. If there ever was an honest, unselfish, radical, and effective change of conviction and conduct, it was that of Saul of Tarsus. He became, by a creative act of the Holy Spirit, a new creature in Christ Jesus. Paul's conversion to Christ radically changed him. Conversion to Jesus Christ should radically change us. Your conversion to Jesus Christ should radically change you. None of us will ever have the same conversion story that Paul did, but we should let Jesus change us more than many of us do. I think, I believe, Christ came into our life to be bigger than we are letting him be. Christ came into your life to be larger than sometimes we let him be. I think many see Jesus as a part of life, but not as the one all-sufficient answer to life. We can say that we know Jesus, and still, in our hearts, we can still define our lives and define ourselves by what else besides Jesus we have or do not have. Many define themselves by their biggest problem or their greatest weakness or their greatest failure or by the worst thing that happened to them or by the best thing that happened to them. But as long as you are primarily looking at your life in any way outside of Christ, your conversion to Jesus has not had the full effect on you that it had on Paul and that it should have on you. If you define your life, if you define yourself by what a certain person did to you or didn't do for you, you are making that person in your life bigger and greater than Jesus. If you if your primary outlook on life is colored by something that happened to you 25 years ago or 1 year ago, or six months ago, then you're letting your past experiences be larger than the experience of knowing Jesus Christ. 
we, we can say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. If, you, if, I, if I was to like, give you a test and who do you think Jesus is and what is Jesus to you, you can say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But often, so often when we start talking, I mean, when we actually start talking in everyday conversation, we reveal that we are not really that captivated by him. And I'm not saying that to condemn anyone. I'm saying that to help us correct that, to help us to get, to get Jesus bigger in our vision, to have him larger in our life. Our words so often reveal that we're captivated by our, by our issues or by our issues with others or our issues with our past. We, we, we can't seem to get our mind off of who we were or who we are or what happened to us or what is happening to us or what we wanted to happen so badly that never has happened. And... In reality, and where we live sometimes, in our hearts, where we live in our thinking, where we live in our conversation, it's as if meeting Jesus didn't really matter that much. And that's a crying shame. Of course, our past and our present experiences are real. And we do experience pain. Uh, we do experience feelings of rejection or, or inferiority or regret or guilt. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is so sufficient, so big, his work is so complete that he solves and overcomes all of those things. So Christ, Jesus Christ, not our issues, not anything or anybody else is the dominant factor in our lives. And that means in our thinking, that means in our heart, that means in what we talk about. It means how we look at life. Jesus is the dominant experience of our life. And in all our experiences, we need, we need to ask ourselves some questions. We need to ask, what does that matter now that I have Christ? Or we need to ask ourselves, now that I know Jesus, how do I look at this experience? As a new, as a brand new, complete new person in Christ, with, with the complete and total sufficiency and adequacy of Jesus Christ in me and in my heart, how do I react to this situation that is before me? The, the defining experience of Paul's life was to meet Christ. And from, from that point on, Christ overshadowed everything else about Paul. Christ changed who Paul was, what he did, what he trusted in, what he gave his life to. Christ became his life. For me to live is Christ, Paul said. Christ became his all in all. All other motives and goals became secondary. Paul saw Christ as greater. He actually, in his viewpoint, it was, this wasn't, wasn't a... This wasn't something that, I, that he felt, I should look at life this way. He actually did look at life this way. He looked at Christ as greater than every problem, every obstacle, every circumstance. Uh, the, the, the very familiar statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, was not just a Bible verse to Paul. 
It wasn't just a memory verse. It wasn't just a, a concept or a statement. It was, it was an outlook on life that he really lived by. I mean, when, 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 it, when anything, anything happened, any circumstance, up or down, he, that was his outlook. Okay, fine, I can handle everything, anything, through Christ who strengthens me. I'm fully ready for any circumstance, for anything that comes my way through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ himself is so sufficient, so adequate, that, it, that I can handle whatever comes. I can do all things through Jesus Christ. Paul was not trapped in his past because Christ had forgiven, forgotten, cleansed, and redeemed his past. And he had called him to a life that was ahead of him. He had called him to something that was before him or ahead of him. And so Paul said, one thing I do, I forget what is behind, and I strain forward or I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So there, there, was, this, there was this sense of, of being able to, to, to leave behind uh, the, the past and the, the, the sin and the failure and the regrets and the problems and the issues and to, to respond to God's call heavenward to respond to God's call, to reach, reach toward the heavenly things that he was called to and to focus on that. That became, that became the focus of his life. I strain toward, I earnestly reach out for uh, th- this, these things that God has called me to in Christ Jesus. I recently uh, ordered, a, ordered a couple of books and actually, I actually sent these books to... Uh, a couple of people that I know that that are are not believers, and I thought thought it was a really powerful powerful book. And the name of the book is "Magnificent Obsession: Why Jesus Is Great," and is written by a British writer named David Robin, Robinson. And in the book, he tells of the story of how he came up with this title. And he was watching a BBC program about a pastor's kids who he said, or he, he described as having gone wild living in sin. And they, they fell into sin after their dad died. After their pe- dad, who was a pastor, died, these kids just went wild living in sin. And I can't go into the whole story, but later uh, the pastor's son was, was radically saved. And uh, BBC, the BBC was doing a, a program about this, this community where this, the pastor's kids were saved because it kind of created a conflict between what they called the born-agains and those who were not the born-agains. And that, that was why BBC was there. But anyway, uh, the BBC interviewer asked the pastor's son, what does Jesus mean to you? And David Robertson said, I will never forget his answer. His eyes filled with tears, and he quietly declared, Jesus... He is beautiful. He is my everything. He is my magnificent obsession. And from seeing that conversation, David Robinson went on to write the book titled Magnificent Obsession, Why Jesus is Great. That's how Paul viewed Jesus. 
Paul viewed Jesus as his magnificent obsession. And for our own sake, we need to see Jesus as our all-sufficient, all-satisfying, magnificent obsession. For your own sake, you need to see Jesus as your all-sufficient, all-satisfying, magnificent obsession. So many of our spiritual problems come from making too little of Christ. So much of what we struggle with in our minds and our emotions come from making too little of Jesus. So much of our bondage to problems and to the past come from not seeing Jesus Christ as the basic solution to life. Our problems come so much from not seeing Jesus as the basic solution to our brokenness and our fallenness. From not boasting in Him as the one who has made us more than adequate for life. He is the answer to all our sins. He is the answer to all the needs of your soul. He is the answer to all your hungers and thirsts. He is the answer to everything. He is the answer to life. You know, in our scripture today, Paul tells the story of his conversion, of his meeting Jesus Christ. He tells the story of his conversion to the Jews in Jerusalem. And in our story that John read for us, we find out how, really in an amazing, miraculous way, he got that opportunity to talk to the Jews about Jesus, what he said to them, and how they responded. And if you've been here through this series in Acts, you'll remember that back in, uh, just prior to this story, in Acts 21, Paul was going to Jerusalem. Uh, And Paul said, I am going there because the Holy Spirit compels me to go. So he was going because the Holy Spirit compelled him to go. Uh, He said he was going there to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And he was going, he knew, at great personal cost to himself. I mean, he, he, he walked into the conflict, into the suffering, into the problems, into the hatred there at Jerusalem. He walked into that with his, with his eyes wide open. He said, I'm prepared not only to, to be put in prison, but even to die at Jerusalem for the sake of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you were here for Josh's message last week, you know that uh, when Paul got there, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, they, they came up with this elaborate scheme to, to tamp down the anger of the Jews toward Paul. Uh, their idea was to have Paul to go, go through a public Jewish uh, ritual of pur- purification, which involved going to the temple. And it was all designed to show that, that Paul had respect for the law of Moses. Well, uh, the, the hope was that this show of, of, uh, of law-keeping, of this, this rite of uh, purification... The hope was to show that this would appease the anger and the hatred, the fury of the Jews. Well, anybody remember what happened? It didn't work at all, okay? Uh, the, the scheme to, to appease the Jews only created more hostility and more violence. And Luke says they, they seized Paul and tried to kill him, and they would have except that a Roman military commander, I think some versions call it a Roman tribune, but a Roman military commander 
heard the riot, rushed into the mob to stop them and also to arrest Paul. Okay, verse 37 from, from our passage tells us that Paul simply asked permission to seek, speak to the Roman commander. Okay, he just says to the Roman commander that had kind of seized him and taken him in. He said, hey, can I say something to the crowd? Well, by speaking, Paul, when, when Paul spoke, he spoke to him in Greek. And by speaking in Greek, just by asking this question, the Roman commander realized that Paul was not who he thought he was. He had presumed that Paul was an Egyptian terrorist. He, had, he assumed that Paul was this, this, this leader, Egyptian leader, of 4,000 men who went around assassinating their Roman political opponents. Well, by Paul asking this question in Greek, he realizes that Paul is not that guy. He realizes he's not that Egyptian terrorist. And I think because of that, he is more inclined to, to be lenient with Paul. So, verse 39, Paul replied, No, I'm not that guy. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. The Roman officer w- was impressed that, Paul, hey, Paul is a Roman citizen. And so he gave him permission to speak. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. All right. You got, you got, to, re, you got to remember, this is what Paul lived for. I mean, this was the passion of his heart, to, ter- to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to tell about meeting Jesus and knowing Jesus. And especially to his fellow countrymen, to the Jews, to his fellow Jews. That was his passion to get to proclaim this message to the Jews. And so that's what he came to Jerusalem for. And he came to make one last appeal for his, for his Jewish brothers and sisters to receive Jesus as the Messiah. I think it's important to note how, how remarkable this opportunity came about. I mean, it, it seemed to come about by, by just the... The, 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 the most coincidental of circumstances just by, because Paul set, set, happened to ask in Greek, speaking Greek, if he could speak to the crowd. And that set in, set in, in motion this whole series of, of event. So, not to get off track, but just as an important side lesson, when, you know, when God is ordering our steps... Very significant opportunities can come out of the most seemingly insignificant events. I mean, God directs our path, and many times that path is directed by just the very smallest of choices and seeming coincidences, but God is ordering the steps of the righteous person. The righteous man and woman says God is ordering his and her steps. One other thing that I want to point out about this that I think is significant the year that Paul gave this, the year that Paul stood before the Jews and gave this public testimony in Jerusalem, and this is the last time that Paul is, go- is going to pro- proclaim the message of Jesus in Jerusalem. The year that Paul gave this t- public testimony is A.D. 58. Within eight years, the city of Jerusalem was under an effort to put down their revolt by... The Romans, and within 12 years, the city of Jerusalem would virtually no longer exist. 
I mean, just 12 years after this is major, major city. The city and the Jewish temple would be utterly destroyed and burned by Titus in, in 70 A.D. Uh, over a million Jews died, nearly, and nearly all the survivors were enslaved by the Romans. Judgment. Jesus had foretold that. Judgment was coming upon Jerusalem and the Jews for rejecting the time, as Jesus put it, the, the time of their visitation. But here, when Paul is speaking, there was one more opportunity for them to receive Jesus as their Messiah and Lord. And again, another side lesson from that is nobody ever knows how much longer they have for an opportunity to be saved. Nobody ever knows. And young, young person or kids, adults too, but kids, I think you, 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 you feel like your life, you're going to live forever. You feel like life's just going to keep going on. You, you don't know how fast things can change. But nobody ever knows how much longer they have an opportunity to begin walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus, living for Jesus. Verse 40 of chapter 21, And then, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And so, as, they, as a crowd, this massive crowd that had been, just been a, in a riot, uh, Moments before, they, they, they quiet down. And Paul tells this, this crowd of Jews about what? What does he tell them? He tells them about meeting Jesus. He tells them about Jesus coming to him, revealing himself to him. He tells them about his encounter with Jesus and how, how radically, how totally Jesus Christ changed him. And he began by making every effort to get them to listen to him. You know, how do you get people to listen to you? Often you say things, well, you know, I used to feel that same way. Or that's just like what happened to me. Well, that's, that's basically what Paul was doing here when he opens up this talk. He made every effort to get them to listen to them by saying, I am a Jew, just like you guys. I have always been zealous for the law, just like you guys. And just like you, I hated the followers of Jesus. I hated them to the death. So he's, he's, just, he's just trying to show them that he totally identifies with where they're at in their, their attitudes. He said, whether it was men or women, it didn't matter to me. I've sent them both to prison. And all the leaders of Jerusalem know that. The high priest knows that. They're the ones in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, they're the ones that gave me letters that were written to the Jewish leaders in D Damascus telling me who to arrest. And that's what I did. I, I went there and I showed, those letters showed me who to arrest and bring back here to be imprisoned and punished. But then Paul says, something happened. Something, something changed me. At verse 6, I was on my way and I drew near, near to Damascus and about noon... A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here in this passage it says he heard a voice in the, his previous testimony. So he not only heard a voice, he saw, he saw Jesus. And he answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord 
said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. All right, why is Paul telling the Jews this? First of all, he's trying to identify with them. He's saying, you know, I was just like you. I had the same hatred for the followers of Jesus. But he said, he was saying, only one thing could make me turn from hating the followers of Jesus to becoming one of them. And that's that Jesus himself appeared to me. The Lord appeared to me, and that changed everything. I saw that Jesus was Lord. He was much more than a man. When, when, when Jesus appeared to Paul out of heaven and he heard the heavenly voice and the, the light from heaven, Paul knew for sure that Jesus was more than a man. He knew that Jesus was Lord. He knew that he was, he was God. He had appeared from heaven. And Paul said, the only response I could have was to ask what he wanted me to do. And so Paul said, that like, that like turned my life around. It was no longer what did I want to do. It was no longer what the chief priests and the Jewish leaders wanted me to do. It was what did Jesus want me to do. Well, it says, Paul said his companions led him to Damascus because the heavenly light had blinded him. Uh, Damascus, a man, he says, highly respected by the Jews, Ananias, uh, placed his hands on Paul, and Paul's sight was immediately restored. Acts 9 tells us that Paul was then uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Here in this chapter and in Acts 9, it says that then Paul was baptized with water. And Ananias told him, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. What, what, an, what an incredible statement that really is if, if, if you listen to that. God appointed you to know, to know his will. I mean, in, in a sense, that's true of every one of us that have been truly converted. It's like God appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one, and no, 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 though perhaps not physically like Paul did, we've, we've been appointed to see Jesus. The veil has been removed from our eyes to behold Jesus. And to hear a voice from his mouth. We, we, we've, been, we've been appointed to live a life now where, where we, where we hear, hear his voice. My sheep know me and they hear my voice. Uh, that's, that's the kind of life that Paul was was called to in an especially dramatic way, but that's that's what conversion is about. And Paul, or God gave Paul a new mission in life, and it was was confirmed to this man, Ananias. God God appointed you to, to be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Verse 17, then Paul said, Jesus appeared to me again. I think this is a really interesting part of the story. You may not, but uh, it was, it's, it was, you, we all know about Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Okay, well, Paul says in this passage, he says, I returned, at some time after that, I returned back to Jerusalem. I was in the temple, and he said, Jesus appeared to me again. I was in a trance in the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus told me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem. The Jews will not listen to you. Verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in 
one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when, they, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who'd killed him. And I think of what's, what's going on here is Paul was in Jerusalem. Jesus said, get out of Jerusalem. Hurry, get out of Jerusalem. The Jews will not listen to you. And I think what's going on here is Paul is saying, no, Jesus, I think they will listen to me because they knew my past, they know of my past hatred for the followers of Christ. But Jesus overruled him and said, no, they won't. Verse 19, Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, the interesting thing of this is why is Paul telling the Jews all of this? You know, why, why, does he, why does he go into this intricacies of this, of this communication that he had with Jesus in this trance in Jerusalem? Well, I, I think Paul is telling the Jews about this conversation he had with Jesus to explain why he proclaimed Jesus to Gentiles. I mean, this is one of the big problems that the Jews had with Paul. They hated him for going to the Gentiles. They, they said, hey... God's not going to save anybody but us, you know? And we don't want him to save anybody but us. And if Paul's taking this message to the the Gentiles, we don't like that. They were mad about that. But Paul is saying, I went to the Gentiles because the Lord told me to. I had this conversation with him, and he told me I was to go to the Gentiles. But this only enraged them. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul up up until he said this, Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. They not only rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but as I said, they hated the idea that God would save anybody but them. So they they wanted to kill Paul just like they had killed Jesus. But Paul was fully prepared for that because he knew that conversion to Christ meant suffering with Christ. Now, even though this story, even though this story looks like a massive failure all the way around, I mean, doesn't it? I mean, it, look, it looks like just like, like total failure. I mean, like as, as we, when I was in college, we would have said, what a bummer. You know, it just, it just didn't look like anything good came out of this. But God was at work through this, and we'll see as we go on through Acts, God is at work through this to open doors for the gospel to be preached to kings and rulers and in the great city of Rome, just as Jesus himself had, had foretold Paul or told Paul that he would be that he would be doing. But there's an there's a, there's an even greater reason than that that this was not a failure. And and the the reason this was not a failure is because Paul faithfully gave the people, Jesus. They didn't accept him, but Paul gave the people Jesus. And there's a passage that I thought of in, the, in this story. is 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Really an important verse. Man, I wish every one of us would live by this verse. Get it into your heart. Paul said, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumph. 
God always leads us in a triumphal procession or like we are always marching in triumph in Jesus. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. That's, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a powerful statement. But what it's saying is that, is, that, is that what matters to God, what matters to God is that you give off the aroma of Christ. It doesn't matter what the results are. It matters that you give off the sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ everywhere, everywhere you are, in your home, in your neighborhood, in the church, no matter who you're, who you're with, what you're doing, that you give off the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ, that is triumph. That you're, if, you're, if you're giving off Jesus, no matter what the results are, you're, you're living, you're marching in triumph. You're living victoriously if you're giving off Jesus, regardless of the results. All right, I want to wrap up by sharing uh, some thoughts on... Con- conversion, since that's what the story is, is all, all about. Uh, number one, conversion to Christ is absolutely necessary. There is no salvation without conversion. Uh, no one is going to heaven without conversion, without being converted, without coming to know, to meet and to know Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to happen as dramatically as it did for Paul but it has to happen. Multitudes of church people think they are Christians and they are not. Kids grow up in the church all the time and think they're saved and they're not. Young people who are here, uh, and there is a few because we had the kids stay in. Thank you. Every, all the young people listening, I want you to be saved. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know him personally. I want you to be converted. I want you to be born again. We don't want you to be just church kids. We don't want you to be just good kids. We want you to be that, but we don't want you to be just that. We want you to be kids who know Jesus, are filled with him and walking with him and, and are living with him with the same attitude that Paul had. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm yours. I belong to you. I want, we, want, we want you to be saved. I, and I beg you, kids, to make sure you are saved. Make sure... Christ is living in you. Number two, conversion is coming to know a person. It is coming to know Jesus. It is, it is not becoming part of the Christian culture. Uh, it's not becoming part of the good group of kids at school. Or it's not, for adults, it's not just becoming a, a, a better person or becoming a, a moral person where, in your neighborhood or home or where you work. It is not just being in the church or growing up in the church. Conversion is knowing Jesus. And that's what Paul talked about when he had the opportunity to share, share the gospel. He didn't... I mean, it was, it, was, it was all about meeting and knowing Jesus. That's my story. That's the story I have to tell you. Number three, conversion is absolute surrender. It's capitulation. I'm trying to think of a better, shorter word than that, but that communicates it. 
You give up, you give up yourself. You give up your resistance to God. You give up your fight against God and you, 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 you go over to his side. You respond like Paul, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Uh, there's just no other response possible for any who have truly had an encounter with Jesus. And if you believe that Jesus is the risen Lord, then, then there's, there's nothing you can do but fall at his feet. Certainly in worship, but also just in complete submission to him and give him your complete obedience. Number four, when God brings you to the point of conversion, he already knows how he wants to use you in the work of his kingdom. You know, the Lord had plans for Paul when he saved him. I mean, he told him, right on the road to Damascus, I've got plans for you, you're going to do this. And, he, and the Lord does for you too. Uh, he, he has works uh, prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And, and, of course, much of his plan for us is, is the same. Much, much of his plan is the same for all of us. We, we're, for example, we're to walk in, in humility. We're to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in peace and unity with, with one another. We're to walk in, in forgiveness. Uh, we're to rejoice always. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to always be giving thanks. I mean, those are God's, that's God, part of God's will. As soon as he saves you, it's like, okay, this is my plan for you. But there's also a unique way that God wants to use you in his work. And we must be careful not to neglect that. You know, Paul said, I consider my life of no value to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received. From the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's, there's a calling on your life. And we must take that calling seriously. You know, I mean, Paul took it very seriously. He said, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't count my life in any way as valuable to me as, as, as it is for me to complete what Jesus has asked me to do or is asking me to do. Number five, conversion is a real miracle of God's grace. I think we can pretty easily see that Paul's conversion was supernatural. But as far as what takes place inside of you at conversion, it is just as supernatural. Okay, you might not have the, the light from heaven, uh, but as far as what takes place in you, the new birth, the, being a new creation, it's just as supernatural as what happened to Paul. Don't let the devil tell you it was just something psychological or emotional. Christ is real. And Christ really came looking for you and he showed himself to you. And then he really came to live in you by his spirit. All of that's real. It's a real deal. Uh, Paul compared God's power in, in our conversion to God's power in the creation of the world. He said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the same kind of creative act, Paul said, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The, if you're born again, the, the light in you, the spiritual light in you is as real as the light you see outdoors in the sunshine. When you look up at the sun, the light that is in you in Christ is just that real. Number six, conversion to Christ means suffering with Christ or at least being fully prepared to suffer. Uh, I think this is, I think this is really important. Uh, 
I, I mean, I love the, uh, I'm, I'm going to say the fun side of the Christian life, okay? I mean, I love praising Jesus. I love being happy. I love rejoicing in the Lord. I uh, love fe- Christian fellowship. I love going to have a cup of coffee with a dear brother, uh, going out for lunch. People, I love all of that. But when you're converted, there is something that takes place you are identifying with a suffering Savior. And so you, there's just something inherently about conversion that you, are, you, you know that you are at least willing and prepared to suffer. Paul said, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a part of, of life. There's, there's, uh, there's an old song that, that we sang by, or list, used to listen to by James Ward, that it's, it's the glory and the pain serving with tri- Christ Jesus makes the answer very plain. And if you've served Jesus very long, you know it's both glory and it's pain. And you're ready for that. Just like Paul, you're ready to walk into that with your eyes wide open. And so like Paul, we take our place with Jesus, bearing his reproach, willing to be outside the circle of acceptance. And this is really important for young people. Man, it's so hard to stand outside the pressure or stand for Jesus in the midst of the pressure of peers and friends and what people expect of us. But we, have to, we go to Jesus bearing his reproach, willing to be outside the circle of acceptance, willing to be rejected, even hated for the name of Jesus or persecuted should it come to that. Number seven. Conversion means that your life is now defined by Christ. And if you didn't hear anything else that I've said this morning, I you know, beg, beg of you to hear this. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. It's time, it's time for you, it's time for me, but it's time for you to define yourself as one who has met Christ. Let that overshadow everything else about you. Your upbringing is not your life. Christ is your life. Your past is not your life. Jesus is your life. Your husband or your wife is not your life. Jesus Christ is your life. For in some cases, your ex-husband or ex-wife is not your life. Christ is your life. Your parents no matter how great they were or how terrible they were, are not your life. No experience that you've ever had is your life. Christ is your life. Having a family or not having a family is not your life. Being married or not being married is not your life. Your kids are not your life. Jesus Christ is your life. Your success or your failure in business or career or ministry even is not your life. Your education, your title at work, your salary is not your life. You're not defined by your health issues or your family problems. Jesus Christ is your life. Of course, all, these, all those things affect us. I'm not saying they don't. Okay, We feel those things. And we, and we all have a story. But we have a bigger story. And the bigger story of our lives is that we have met and know Jesus. And if you've met Jesus, that is your story, just like it was Paul's story. And we're not supposed to read... There's three times in the book of Acts that Paul shares his conversion experience. 
we are not supposed to just think what a great thing it was that Paul was so changed. We're to be changed like that too. So let Jesus make all the difference in you that he can and should. Uh, Let him change you in your home. Let him change the way you talk to your kids, the way you love your kids. Let him change your priorities. Let him change the way you talk to your spouse and about your spouse. Let him change your voice, your tone of voice. Yeah, Jesus wants to change your tone of voice. Let him change your countenance. Yes, he wants to change your face too. really does. Let Jesus change the way you respond to daily problems. Let him change the way you deal with fear and anxiety. You know, we're not called like Paul to testify before kings, you know, to journey all over the world. But we are called to live as new creations. We are, we are, called, we are called to show forth the glory of Christ. We're called to show forth that Christ is satisfying and sufficient. Is that that the way we're living and talking? Is that showing in our countenance? Jesus, Jesus is all satisfying and sufficient. And we're supposed to do that right here, right now, in our sphere, in our circumstances, in our, our life. That's where we're supposed to show that. All right, let's stand. And and pray.